This is the Gender Card Podcast from Griffith University's Gender Equality Research Network. I'm Nance Haxton, and together we will speak to the vanguard of remarkable researchers breaking down the issues of gender equality, women's leadership and gender inclusivity in all realms of life. Today on The Gender Card, we explore the emerging research around critical race feminism and how that intersects with feminist practice in arts and academia. Griffith University's Dr Nilmini Fernando's innovative research was recently featured in the Journal of Intercultural Studies, particularly her research exposing racial treatment of asylum women through a participatory theatre-based project in Ireland. As a Sri Lankan-Australian interdisciplinary feminist researcher, educator and practitioner, Dr Fernando uses her lived experience and expertise in critical race theory to expand on Sarah Ahmed's seminal work to distinguish specific forms of black female agency and resistance in Australia. She's also co-editing a book based on Griffith University's Senior Research Fellow, Dr Debbie Bargalli's groundbreaking work on racial literacy. The Griffith Gender Card podcast acknowledges the people who are the traditional custodians of the land, pays respect to the elders past and present, and extends that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So my name is Nilmini Fernando, Dr. Nilmini Fernando. I'm the adjunct research fellow at Griffith University and I'm actually a research fellow for Dr. Debbie Bargalli and I have been for a few years. Nilmini, thank you so much for joining us on The Gender Card today. Thank you, Nance. It's wonderful to be here. It's such a great project. Yes, it's it's been great speaking to all the incredible researchers at the Gender Equity Research Network. Firstly, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice? Okay, well, Nance, before I begin, I just think it's really important to locate ourselves in my positionality as a non-Indigenous woman of colour living on unceded Aboriginal lands. My, I'm a critical intersectional scholar and practitioner, so my critical intersectional praxis attempts to take a reflexive stance that is knowing that my experience of colonialism are, first of all, incommensurable with the experience of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and gender-diverse people, And that, importantly, I benefit from, I'm complicit with the colonisation of these lands and waters. So today I'm speaking from Melbourne or Nam, and I'm on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And what's really important is that we understand at all times our cognizant that all, that this land was never ceded and it always was and always will be, always is and always will be Aboriginal land. So one of the things about, you know, that I go on about this, because I think if we don't do this work of positioning where we are in the scheme of things, we end up harming the very people that we are trying or erasing the very people that we are working for, with and standing with in in our struggle. So, you know, the, 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 the difficult part is that we are benefiting as we do this work in the academy or wherever you do it, we're benefiting from the very structures that we seek to critique and dismantle. So that's, I think, positionality is one of the key things that I really unpack. 
Oh, and it's such an integral part of the research that you do from what I've read, Nilmini, as well. Your work is really grounded in that post-colonial, that black and third world feminism. Can you tell us a bit about an article that you had published recently? And also there's a very interesting link with Sarah Ahmed's work and really how that just changed the trajectory of, of your research as well. Yes, Nance. I'm really glad you asked me that question because it might it was based on my doctoral research, which is really I suppose you don't get time otherwise except in a doctoral research project to take the long route, the slow route, the the really looking. And you know, I did my master's and PhD in women's studies at UCC Cork. And I said, I there is no other way I can do feminist research without it being participatory in action. And against the advice, I guess, of my committee, I did it because there was no other ethical way to engage and to be feminist at the same time. So I worked in a participatory project with the most incredible cohort of women from different places in the African continent seeking asylum in Ireland. And it was a very specific moment. And I think that it's very important also. Every single term has to be unpacked. So people, when I say post-colonial, it partly refers to the whole literature on post-colonialism, but it does not say that colonialism is over. So that post-colonial literature and black feminist literature, what I love about Sarah Ahmed's work is that she thoroughly examines that canon and she builds on and brings it up to a usable kind of way as a feminist. So grounded in all those, it's quite unusual to get somebody who has read through all that and so deeply works on it. But on top of that, Sarah adds her philosophical constructs. And one of the one, you know, post-colonial asylum, that was the article about the ideas of post-colonial asylum and the way she unpacks all that theory. She brings together what can be in mainstream feminism, used a singular kind of pick and choose, pick and mix bits of black feminist theory, first you know, indigenous and native feminist theory, Africana feminisms, it's not a pick and choose, it's like the whole canon. And each of them tells us something about the work that needs to be done and also how it can be done from multiple standpoints. So I think that I expand on that idea of post-colonial encounters. And what I do in my doctoral research is to understand, like she uses encounters, right? So post-colonial assignment is about encounters. So in the colonial encounter, it's always the encounter of the dominant with the other. And so the encounters methodology, Stuart Hall has talked about three moments of encounter between the West and the rest. And I theorize the fourth moment of encounter. So the, the three moments were colonial colonization and the transatlantic slave trade. Then we have post-colonial migration where you know, as um, Sivanandam says, you know, we come here because you were there. That, And then the fourth one is, I think, the asylum encounter. So that's what I really looked at and the, about forced displacement. And so I guess my entire practice, I mean, I'm based in critical race because people forget that intersectionality is one of the key tenets of critical race theory. And so feminists might forget that. So I read across the boat, but from a feminist standpoint, so I, what I did was I studied, you know, asylum is a very contentious issue and that it constructs asylum seekers and refugees differently in different moments. So what I did was I tracked that, but, but instead of just, and I looked at all the images, so I do a lot of visual 
racial literacy analysis, race slash gender literacy, they're always connected. And that the, the, the refugee and asylum seekers were constructed as subjects of the Western humanitarian discourse. So what I try to do is unsettle that idea that asylum is a gift given by developed countries in the north to the less fortunate others in the south, when actually, if you look at the geopolitical and the economic situation, they are very closely related. So it really is a colonial continuity. So why then, my big question was, why do the northern the states in the north sign the UN convention, the refugee convention, but then when they when people seek their rights that are given to them through international law, lock them up, detain and put them into encampment of positions of absolute degradation and exclusion uh, of, and then they disperse them, then they deport them. That was the key thing. You're um, looking at the big questions here, Neil Minnie. What did you find? Nance, look, <laughs> I, yeah, I know it's a big question, but mm. we are capable of big thinking. Yes. At big thinking. And I think as academics, so privileged to have had an education, to have even though it could be very hard won by, you know, a lot of women of colour, it's very hard in migrants and obviously First Nations women to have this knowledge. My other thing is about what am I doing with it? Mm. What is this knowledge for? And to me, it's an ethical matter and it really is important that that is how I live feminism and that is how I understand feminism. It's something you do. And so what's very important is that we mustn't in our work whether that be, I work across, as I said, I work in the academy, but I also work with practitioners in the not-for-profit sector, in the women's sector, in the domestic and family violence sector. And wherever you are, you are a practitioner, whether you're a board member, whether you're a, a manager, whether you're an um, educator like me and a researcher, and whether you're a hands-on frontline practitioner, we all are practicing something. And so I find it at that level it's something that you don't get to do as a pure academic, uh, maybe. I, I don't want to make any generalizations here, but it's you're either or, and I like being in both camps because what's happening on the ground, academic feminist research, even domestic and family violence, we have a lot of data. But when it comes through, does it flow through to the level of practice so you can change what it is you're doing? And we're all talking here about the domestic and family violence situation, how it's represented, how violence is defined and all that kind of stuff. So, Oh, it's I so interesting. That... I, mean, I, I just feel like you speak of intersectionality. I feel like you're building bridges between all these different theories and also with practice. It's really, really fascinating what you're doing here. It's intersectionality and practice as well. Yeah, absolutely. It, that just reminds me of a of a phrase that Cherry Moraga and Gloria Anzaldúa, that there are no bridges, we build them as we walk, you know, so that idea of, I think it comes from a book called This Bridge Called My Back, you know, so I'm very much into embodiment, that we are here, I'm standing here in front of you, and the women that I work with who are, you know, whether in the workforce or as victim survivors or people advocating for people with disabilities and, and race, if they, they are also there, they're physically present, so we can't just abstract their lives. And so from their lived experiences of racism, extreme racism and the gendered racisms uh, that are experienced. I don't find a lot of that except for very critical feminist scholarship. And that's usually done in the margins by, you know, we kind of segregated in the in the academy as well and not welcome. So 
we kind of marginalized as feminists and also feminists of color and women of color and people of color. So those knowledges are separated. So I think it's so important to take it interdisciplinary, but also intersectoral, you know, if you know what I mean. Yes, and, so and, would, and for practice yeah. and academia to, to, to work together, to, to feed off each other, because they're both experiencing these, these issues from, from different perspectives and can learn from each other. Yeah, and, and actually to pay attention to the harms that take place, mm. you know, that the harms tend to happen. We might all know theoretically, yes, racism is bad. We mustn't do this. We mustn't do that. But when you come to practice, you're creating more harms if you don't question categories. So a lot of my work, my, my whole sort of shtick, if you want to say, <laughs> is looking at intersectionality. I have two phrases, putting the power back into intersectional practice and also don't harm as you try to help, you know, so Putting the power back is based on Patricia Hill Collins' model. So one of the innovations from my doctoral research is what really flows into my work now, because what I what the, I developed a model of intersectional praxis that is a power mapping exercise where you centre the person, the group, the issue at hand. You centre them, and you're looking outside beyond them to say what is getting in the way of those people being able to use their agency very people know what they what they want what they need they want a safe life they want to progress they want to grow their families educate them they want all those things all right but they don't have access to them and so i looked at the barriers that are actually obstructing their sense of their own agency whereas sometimes in the western liberal mainstream gender kind of feminism gender equity feminism it's always about let's us empower them instead of looking as how are we disempowering, right? So that that idea comes into it. So I use this model and, um, you know, put uh, and see what happens. And Patricia Hill Collins' Matrix of Domination, I did, I did a few things with it and through it. And luckily I had the chance to talk to Patricia about it when she was here at Critical Race and Whiteness Conference uh, in 2020. And it's about understanding that power isn't just a singular thing. It's understanding how power operates. And there's four domains of power. And the interpersonal is your own, you know, where you sit in the middle, but then there's cultural power, there's state, you know, policy, there's kind of structural power, there's cultural power, and there's disciplinary power. So I could squarely locate the not-for-profit sector. I do have a theory and critique, but I won't go into it now. The not-for-profit sector is very much in the disciplinary. We kind of, she says that that kind of um, enacts the dirty deeds, you know, sort of you've got a really sort of policy that has been mainstream, so you have to exclude people, but the not-for-profit sector then picks up the pieces, and I know this has been said before, picks up the pieces and does the word of you can come to this service, you can't come to this service, we can only look at you if you present like this kind of victim, those kind of things. So disciplinary power and cultural power is where a lot of the energy can take place that is transformative. And this also, if I can go back to your yeah. uh, uh, doctoral research, it also goes back to a theatre uh, practice. Could you explain that, that theatre-based yeah. research project? Because that really sort of brought a lot of those issues into sharp focus, essentially, didn't it? It is, yeah. It's essentially about what is it that the people you are researching with, right, how do they want to do this work? So I gave, So there was a lot of discussion, you know, and as I said, my committee said, don't do participate, it'll take forever, <laughs> that kind of thing. And they wanted to do theatre because every other time, like in Ireland, um, there was it was a big moment in Ireland because there were so many discourses. For example, 
the asylum discourse and then all the racism and the hypersexualization of women in the asylum system who were made so poor that they had to sometimes rely on sex or some had to rely on sex work to even get their children to school. So we're talking really serious stuff here. And then at the same time, there was a UN 1325 discussion going on, which the Irish feminists, peace feminists from the North and South, were really engaging with in the post-conflict view. But the very women who come from DRC and the places where there was such an important focus put on 1325, the Women, Peace and Security, that when they come to asylum, they're of no concern. So that was a big gap for me. And so they were actually just trapped in the not-for-profit charity domain. And so there they had to kind of, they would love to have done theatre and speaking, and but they were really constrained by the charity itself, who was actually using a lot of their stories to, to actually raise funds. And yes, some of those funds trickle down, but what about the integrity of the person who wanted to shape and frame their story that way? So when we said theatre, I have a background in theatre and I'm very interested in the arts and, you know, I less like everything. And so we just said, OK, let's go for it. So we did that and actually got ourselves kicked out of the charity space that we were working in. <laughs> and Truly. Well, know, this right? is amazing research. This is quite disruptive, Nilmini. <laughs> I didn't see it like that. For me, there was no question, Right. Because like it sounds like you I'm empowered talking, you empowered the participants to, to essentially tell their stories well, the way they wanted to tell it. Would well, that I be think right? I wouldn't see it as I empowered them. Together mm, we decided. Mm. So this is where I learned a lot of my mm. praxis, right? How are you going to deal with this? Okay, you can get access to your community. I can get access to funding. We share our privileges and our victimization in order to get the funding. So we got the funding for certain different things. So we, for example, we went into an asylum centre. These women were actually just moving out, and some of them had just started to get their citizenship and whatever. And we did sort of theatre of the oppressed. That kind of work, that kind of theatre work is so... So if you look at the body and you look at all the habits that you develop when you're pushed down and when you're locked up and given no money to even buy your sort of feminine needs and buy your children's school books, they got something like 20 euros a week from the government as spending money. And they said, you don't need anything else because all your money, your your accommodation is paid for. That 20 euros, a bus fare is eight. So I'll just give you that as an example. So we went into these things. We got some money and we said, we're doing relaxation and yoga and body movement. I hope they're not listening. And then in the end, divided that fund between all of us equally. And each of the women took a leadership role. We circulated the leadership. You do this bit, I do this bit. And so like that, we sort of redistributed the funding. And that was obtained strategically through I say, I'd say discussion, authentic collaboration, sometimes some very heated conversations uh, so that people could actually make some money, you know, of the money that was being poured in for them, but they never got to see it. Exposing so many of the ironies in the system. And so then I I just, as a bit of a diversion, but coming from there to Australia, I mean, did you find that there were similar issues at play or are there, there big cultural differences that you've been able to explore as well? Yeah, look, one of the first things I noticed was there's a certain number of people that need to be locked up in camps, you know, trapped in asylum detention. And it was around the same number in Australia, 5,000 there, 5,000 here. I thought, what's going on? And and again, I when I got into the um, 
it was very difficult to me, for me to rebuild all my academic contacts. And, you know, one of my cousins said to me, she said, just take race out of your CV. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> wants to know that you're a critical. Just take that out, take that out. And true enough, I got a job. It was in the not-for-profit sector. And that's where I have been. And that's where I really saw the use of intersectionality had been, as it was being mainstreamed by the liberal feminist movement. So for me, liberal feminism is we want to be equal with men. And it's actually even further, you know, differentiated by we, we women who have got certain privileges want to have the same rights as our wealthy white men. You know, I want to sit on a board. That's equality feminism. And it doesn't it doesn't address everybody else and all the different ways that people are marginalised and made vulnerable. So intersectionality, you cannot separate all those things. So what I found was just an add and stir approach. Oh, we'll just do something. And usually that the add and stir comes from kickback from the community saying, you're leaving out this and you're leaving out that and that doesn't work for me. Um, and so then sort of push, push, push. And now we've got to a place. So I, I based my education practitioner education on those key things that perhaps practitioners who might have trained in social work or whatever management, they don't understand about identity formation. They're taking identity as a fixed category. So category categorization is one of the key instruments of colonization. Let's name it and only you can believe you can be belong in this. So in multiculturalism, for example, we've got decades of it. You can belong in Australia and you can have your culture, but as long as it's on our terms, so we can have certain parts of your culture, like your dress and your food and your dance. But when it comes to political, you're not allowed to say things because if you do, you get evicted from the space. So I think multiculturalism has really influenced the way that intersectionality has been, I would say, misenacted, misapplied and diluted and whitened. So my work started there. So I just started to teach about do you know how, and so again, going back to Sarah Ahmed, it's about encounters. When you look at this image, are you conscious that you are recognising, that's what she calls, everything that has gone before that has really stacked up the way meanings are made? So people will look at that and they'll say, oh, right, so you can see the same version, the same signification going on in a multiple images, way back from the colonial images. I use colonial images. And then look at very contemporary images, the one, for example, the cartoon of... Um, of um, Serena Williams, you know, how she was portrayed to tell a particular story. So it's the same story being told using those same things. So I teach people visual literacy, race, gender literacy. It really shows how that practice-based scholarship that, that you're doing, it, it just sort of highlights so many aspects that perhaps really are overlooked. It, it shows us where those harms are happening, don't they, that, that really, yeah, are, are overlooked otherwise. Yes, you're you're absolutely right. And and even the overlooking, you know, one of the things I really don't like to do, I love Sarah's encounters. What she says is, okay, whether it's a visual, well, this is what I say she says, a visual encounter, whether you're actually meeting that person in your service or whether you're looking at a movie, you know, looking at Handmaid's Tale or whatever, get that critical thinking rather than people want tick sheets and checklists and I refuse to give them until some work has been done internally. So the critical thinking, if you have critical thinking, you can analyze any situation and you can change your practice. Whereas if you're looking for with asylum seekers, we do this, with this, we do that, with, with Muslim women, we do that, with Aboriginal women, we do that. That doesn't work. You will hear different things. 
You mentioned Dr. Debbie Bargalli before. You, of course, are the research fellow for her and her renowned work as an Indigenous critical race scholar. What are, what are the points of convergence and what, what differences have you found exploring that in your, your academic work and racial literacy with her? Oh, look, I can say I met Debbie at a, in the bathroom of a, a, a Australian critical race and uh, whiteness conference when I first arrived in Melbourne and I was presenting a paper there uh, on my asylum work. Yeah. And we just met in the bathroom and we just hit it off. We just had a massive conversation and it was so, I just thought to be engaged with somebody who's so connected, but also we, we just shared something. Anyway, I didn't see her for a few. We said, oh, we must keep in touch. And we never did because I was in Melbourne, she was in Brisbane. And then we met again when Social Professor Alana Lenton brought us together to be vice president and, and chair of the Australian Critical Race and Whiteness. And then we just walked into the room and bam, it was Deb and I, because as I said, intersectionality comes from critical race theory. Kimberly Crenshaw is often in feminist circles talked about as the progenitor. Uh, so I have read the critical race literature, but from a feminist standpoint, black feminist and and a few other kinds of feminism standpoint, whereas Debbie's a critical race scholar who is engaged with the same work, but from a different um, disciplinary location. So where we meet is at methodology. We both love theory. We read voraciously. And the, the indigenous methodologies that Deb uses are very congruent with the feminist parties, black feminist and decolonial literacies and methodologies and theories that I use. So intersectionality, I suppose the two methods intersect as well, and mm. intersectionality itself. So I center that, but I bring in race. Race evasive intersectionality is my, my thing, whereas she's talking about critical race, but also paying attention to gender, for example, in the workplace, you know? So her workplace racism for First Nations women and men and workplace racism, which is now hitting the big time, it's actually emerging as a really important topic because it's where we do that work where the re-racializing and the oppression needs to stop. So, yeah, so that's where we met. And the praxis focus, theory, but we believe in theory that enacts practice. So the praxis approach is where we really strongly connect. And there is the joy of black sisterhood. There is the joy of being aligned in our concern and our centering of people that matter. It's not about the blockbuster, although we would love, I would love some recognition in the academy. But for me, the most important thing is to do the work. And we had a really brilliant conversation together with Patricia Hill Collins. And she just said, look, whether you got the funding or not, you need to create and find spaces to do your work. So that's what we do. So we have a lot of doing, being, becoming. I've, it's working with Deb and Dr. Bagali has really enriched my scholarship so much. And the fact that race is so grossly ignored, it is the central undergirding power relation, but we can't not do the other. So we really feed each other. And I suppose the way we are growing and deepening our work is to think about them as intersecting critical literacies. You know, we need quite a few. We need them all. And I think intersectionality, the way it is being theorized and also advanced, every time you do something, in my view, you need to advance it, not just repeat and stay fixed in, oh, we did that quite well. I think each time, because there's so much to catch up on. So in that space, there's a little bit more kickback against the idea of co-design. I mean, co-design, uh, we used to call it participatory, you know, following, you know, obviously um, Paulo Freire and those sort of scholars, uh, I think Orlando 
and anyway, then then it became collaborative, then it became co-design. Whatever you want to call it, it needs to be authentic. So what happens is you might get an academia that, who know now they need to engage, but not re-traumatize and re-exploit, mine those communities for data. They've understood that, the academy has understood that. So going in, but even then there are people like me, I'm a doctorally qualified and experienced academic, even though there are many of us in the sector, you end up having a secondary role. So the final kind of write-up and the accolade and, you know, you might go in the acknowledgements, but the value of the, it's epistemic, it's an epistemic injustice, you know, a violence where your knowledge and your, your work in that sector isn't counted as important. And so even with my financial abuse uh, research that was done in 2018, it was pretty groundbreaking and not that it hasn't been done before, nothing is ever new, but it started to name these things. And then literally a few years on, all the people that have risen and done sort of similar research has gone into this semi-corporate, not-for-profit or profit-for-purpose, I don't know what they call it now, gone into there and they get the accolades, you know, with none of my, once or twice my research is cited, when you get an ethical researcher who is usually a person of colour doing that work, they contact me or they cite my work. So it's really interesting, that citation have you seen improvement, do you think, in all these years that you've been working in this sector? And what, what gives you hope, I suppose? Oh, what gives me hope? Okay, that's a great question, Nance, because it is long work and it's hard work and it's exhausting and it's demoral. What gives me hope is my sisterhood. I work and I write and I keep very close to me my sisters and who and we practice the way we operate is empowering ourselves and healing ourselves but also making sure that there's a lot of creative expression and joy and that is the repair and that is what happens that that is my call now so doing authentic work in solidarity with others like me whether they be people of color or white or whatever ethnicity or background a lot of us are thinking these things and they're not many but there are some understanding, for example, LGBTIQ rights, you have to fight for those because that's the moment we're in. But also that moment is within a bigger movement. And it's the struggle for freedom and liberation, not just equality. And it's for all, not just women and men. So I think those are the things. And I suppose asking yourself, what am I doing with this knowledge? This is where we started, Nancy. What are we doing with this knowledge? You know, what did I do when all that was going on? And to feel like, and we have children as well to raise who are racialized and gendered. And it's about being a vessel of strength and education for them. It's not you. There is a system. It's been going on like this. Here are some of the things we've done. Here are some of the things you want to think about for the next level. So looking at the long arc of justice and also being keeping our integrity, because that is what you're left with in the end, you know, not dehumanizing yourself by being complicit with systems that dehumanise others. Thank you for your work, Nilmini, and, and highlighting the the links that are so often overlooked, building those bridges, as we were saying, and between practice and research and uh, just highlighting so much richness there for us to, to think about today. Um, and, mm. and the hope comes from when I do a talk, when I'm doing a presentation, a conference presentation, there is inevitably three, four, five people that come up and say, where do I get this, right? And they're usually people of colour, they're children, migrants' children who have grown up, got an education. They don't have access to these methodologies. So really, what I really love doing is teaching. 
and teaching methodology and actually giving them the tools that they can use. For example, I did a, a masterclass workshop type of thing at Monash with international students. So they come here and they get to learn all these kind of Western theories about international development. And But are they understanding that when they go back to their countries, they have different races, they have different categories, they have different powers. Are they understanding methods that can be used? Or are they just simply going to go back and replicate the colonial structures in their already colonized countries? So the students, the people who want to learn, the hunger for this knowledge is there. And yeah, so I just wanted to say that is the biggest hope, is that people will look for and it'll empower researchers, academics, students and their students to use methodologies that are theories, actually, theories in practice that are fit for purpose. Thank you so much for joining us on the Gender Card today, Nilmini. Thank you so much, Nance. It was really great. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks to Dr. Nilmini Fernando for exploring her research in critical race feminism and exposing the racial treatment of asylum women on this episode of The Gender Card. And that's all for this episode of The Gender Card. This podcast was produced by the Gender Equality Research Network by Nance Haxton with production assistance from Michael Adams. Stay up to date with this Griffith University podcast on all the major podcast providers, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify and SoundCloud. Speak to you again soon.